0: Today on Around the Coin I interviewed Ivan Smirnov the CTO and co-founder of Elude elude.io Prior to founding Elude Ivan was a software developer at Google and led many other projects internally around search Google Ads Google Assistant Google Cloud Ivan's a builder problem solver and engineer and he is passionate about creating code-based solutions for technical problems. Elude is a travel startup. They're helping people decide where to go, making travel easier. They raised about $3 million and have a really exciting product and service. So we dove into that. And then we also spun off on some tangent conversations, which I very much enjoyed. The show today is sponsored by Otter Labs. You can check out HireOtter.com for more information. If you're hiring developers for your startup and looking for full-time, long-term, talented folks down in South America at lower rates than they are in the U.S., check out HireOtter.com. Just about every skill set available, every talent level, you name it, it is available. So without further ado, I bring you Ivan Smirnov. All right, Yvonne, thanks for jumping on today. Uh, I'm really excited to to dive in. You've got an awesome background and um, I love what you're working on. Maybe just kick us off with uh, what are you working on and and how or what it was that uh, got you interested in Elude? Absolutely. And thanks so much for having me. It's such an honor to be here. So my name is Yvonne and
1: I'm the co-founder and CTO of Elude and I'm responsible for building up the entire technical organization and structure. And the idea behind Elude is to make travel as effortless as possible. Uh, my co-founders and I really, really love travel. And oftentimes the question comes up that says, hey, we have this weekend free, got a thousand bucks, where can we go? And you end up spending hours, dozens of hours, opening hundreds of tabs and trying to figure out where can you go? And it's a very tedious process. You find something that maybe works for flights, but the hotels don't work or the timelines don't work. And it's just a very labor intensive process. And in this day and age, The best thing that we can get back is our time. So we sat down and we were thinking, what can we do to make this process easier? Because we have found that when we travel, it is such a delightful way to experience the world. We have this beautiful planet with all these incredible cultures, food, experiences, and a lot of folks don't get to enjoy that fully. And they think that travel is not as accessible as it really is. So our goal behind Delude is to build a wonderful app that is very simple. We ask you, what is your budget? when are you free, and how many people are you? That's it. And what we do on the back end is we figure out amazing itineraries that we can send you to.
0: Mm. And what do you do? So if I give you, you know, I have a $2,000 budget, I have one week at this time and one other person, how do you parse the world? Because I I feel just this onslaught of data is overwhelming even to think about. How, How do you manage that? Technically or operationally.
1: (laughs) That is such a fantastic question. And you're hitting the nail on the head. This is what makes Allude so unique because every single other travel provider out there is a one-to-one booking. You know where you are and you know where you want to go. And the question is, is how would you like to specifically get there? And this is the challenge that we ultimately had to solve, is how do we do a one-to-many search? Because it is impractical and infeasible to do a search for every single city out there. At the same time, we want to have interesting and meaningful results. So the process has evolved over the years. Initially, we had a small created list of different cities, and we would do a parallel search to all of those different locations. With time, that list grew. And right now, one of our biggest focus is to add personalization. So in the onboarding in the application, we ask you, are you a city person? Are you a nature person? How important is connectivity for you? And our goal is to utilize that information to pre-filter the list of potential destinations and only search across those filtering across the budget. So when a search comes in, we have Golang microservices all running on AWS EKS. And ultimately, we'll hit one of our travel partners, which is a GDS. It's a global distribution system. This is essentially a centralized system where various airlines and hotels can all publish their fares and availability, and travel companies such as Elude can partner with them to pull that data. So we'll query them for the list of cities we think might be good, filter out the ones that are out of budget, and on the user side, you get a result of three to eight different cities that we think would be a good match for you.
0: Hmm. Even even then, even hearing what you're saying, it sounds so uh uh it sounds difficult to parse through, right? Like is even, even with that data set, like, is it obvious? I mean, do you kind of have to make some, um, filtering or curation behind the scenes to just say, okay, these are the cities that we're just going to focus on because how many, how many cities you have any idea? I'm I'm curious what the number is, but like cities you could realistically travel to for, uh, under $2,000 and under maybe 12 hours of flying time in, you know, leaving, major cities in the U S and the East and West coast. I imagine, yeah, there's probably what, 30, Uh, a hundred.
1: Probably. I mean, it really depends, right? I mean, with your constraints, uh, that list does go down. I mean, we recently purchased a database of different cities and that clocks in at about a million cities. Obviously, that is way more than we would like to parse, but (laughs) I mean, 2000 bucks coming from the U.S., at the end of the day, depending on how we structure the trip, I can get you to Europe from pretty much anywhere in the U.S. for about 500 bucks. And as we all know, within Europe, there's all these low-cost airlines. Same thing with uh, Southeast Asia. So, essentially, once we get that first leg done, as far as local destinations, there's actually a plethora of opportunities. And, you know, you're really hitting the nail on the head is… One of the challenges that we face is how do we decide which cities to show you? Because again, our goal is to give you the best possible experience, but we need to know a lot of data about you. At the same time, we're trying to be very respectful of privacy and only gather the data that we need. So it's an intriguing question, and it certainly helps that we have a microservices architecture because as the company evolves and we understand more and more about what are the desires and use cases of the user, our microservice approach actually allows us to have side channels where we can remix results or kind of mutate them or adjust them on the fly. So we're definitely trying to make this thing as robust and configurable as possible.
0: Mm. I'm curious what you mean by that more technically, when you have a microservices approach, how does that, what's the alternative and what, what have you sort of built behind the scenes? Yes. So
1: we've definitely seen an evolution of technology over the years and Previously, code in general was less complex, and as we all know, as abstraction grows, there's just more and more moving parts. So it can be tempting, especially when you're starting something new, to write a monolith. So you have your one language, you're writing everything in this one workload. The problem becomes is that different components of the system need different scalability. So for example, as far as user authentication, well, that happens on every request, but then there might be multiple searches with one authenticated user. So what happens is the weakest link, if you have a monolith, it's one binary, one server, one instance running somewhere. And the best that you can do is you can replicate that just completely copy pasting that. So that becomes a problem because you have a lot of overhead where let's say you wrote a Java monolith and it clocks in at a gigabyte of RAM. Well, if your search traffic is a little bit slow and you need some more oomph behind the search component, now you need to spin up a whole second server. And the only thing that it's doing is maybe helping balance the search. So what we did during the initial design is we tried to break it down. What does this backend actually need to look like? We've got user authentication, we've got the search component, we've got bookings and registrations, and ultimately we're trying to split these up into self-contained components that can scale individually. So as a simple example, our search traffic might be 10x our reservation traffic. So that gives us some flexibility as to how we would like to structure it.
0: Mm, I feel you, man. Well, kudos to you. Uh, What's the impetus for this? I mean, were you in travel? I mean, you weren't in travel previously, but how did you get interested in this?
1: You know, it's, it's kind of funny. I think it all starts with uh, your upbringing and both myself and my founders were lucky enough that our parents often took us to various interesting locations. And as is often the case, when you're a kid, you're like, why do we have to go there? I just want to stay at home and play video games, but they would just drag us around. And they'd be like, when you get older, you'll appreciate this. And you know, they were right. I will fully admit it. Now that I'm older, there's just this A fascinating approach to... When you travel, you really get to see outside the fish tank. And in my case, I'm bilingual. I speak Russian at home, but I live in America. So it can be interesting because I can look through the Russian lens of the viewpoint at America and essentially observe the fish tank from the outside. And same thing when I go to Russia, I can observe it through an American viewpoint. So. Essential again to the space of cultural relativism where there's absolutely no judgment, but it's simply the novelty of experience where if I go to Thailand, it is a completely different existence, different daily schedule, different food. But because you have this different cultural context, you can really appreciate the cool things that they do over there and then come back here to the States or wherever you're based and appreciate those things. So I've always had this background fascination with travel and I've loved technology from a young age. Back when I was a little kid, I had to create these math worksheets for my youngest brother to teach him addition and subtraction. And as we all know, humans don't make the best random number generators. So after making a few dozen sheets of those, I realized that I could automate the process. So I ended up teaching myself Java and figuring out how to generate these PDFs. And as time went on, I realized more and more the power of technology. So eventually after realizing my love of travel and my knowledge of technology and meeting Alex and Frankie and seeing this idea, we realized that, okay, currently travel is a very high touch process for a consumer. You have to go to all these different sites and really work on all these different bookings and just try to get it sorted. And there's technology. How can we make this simpler for people? And most importantly,
0: give back the gift of time. Yeah. All right, cool. So Russian in the house, uh, for the most part. Absolutely. What is, the, what is the Russian lens on, on the American culture or vice versa? It's
1: really interesting because in the Russian culture, it's a lot more communal, I would say. Yeah. So typically, you know, you'll know your neighbors very well. You might have them for dinner fairly often or host events or kind of do things together more. And what's interesting is also the development of friendship. So again, we're slightly off topic as far as tech. But what's interesting in Russian schooling is unlike the American system, classes aren't shuffled. So you will begin and end your entire 11 years of education with the exact same group of people. Oh, so wow. most Russians that you'll meet, they have core childhood and school friends that they have actually grown up with for 11 years and maintained contact throughout the rest of their life.
0: Wow. Whereas what we do here is you 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 do that, uh, generally speaking, I think in the US, my experience was in public school, you have a class that you're with for a year. And then exactly. you shuffle it up, but usually you're within the same school that might have, you know, anywhere from a couple of classes to a lot of classes. And so your, 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 your network is, uh, small and big, you know, you have. It's broader, it's, but shallower. Yeah. Broader, but shallower. That's the right way to say it. Interesting. Have you heard, uh, t- tell me, where are you guys at with the company progress? However, you measure that either in like money raised or revenue, if you have any, or, trips, books or whatever is meaningful for you.
1: Yep. So we launched as of August of last year. So It was really an exciting launch week. We had this whole war room set up in a conference room and lots of fun stories there. But we saw incredible traffic from day one, thousands of users just getting interested in downloading. So right now, our main metric is the number of downloads and search volume. So we recently surpassed 20,000 downloads, which we're very, very excited about. And over the past three or four months, we've clocked over half a million cumulative searches. So we're not ready to share specifics about the booking ratio, but we're really excited to see that there's strong demand and interest in this, where folks are On the app, and what's curious is if you actually look at how far out people are searching, I think this is indicative of the COVID pandemic that people are not actually making plans the usual four to eight months out that they did previously. We're seeing a lot of interest for trips one week to one month out, and we think that's indicative of this uncertainty in the future. But as a result, Allude kind of has this unique offering where we can come up with a trip with you last minute that will actually be quite
0: interesting. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. To launch this uh, August of 2020 seems like uh, kind of a daunting time, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, you're kind of at the height back then. We're now with 2022, so we're quite a ways out. But 2020, uh, I feel like August timeframe in particular, getting into September, the winter, everyone was on edge. And like airlines- well, I
1: think I actually got Ryan? that wrong. It was 2021. I forgot we're in 2022
0: now. Yeah. So we launched last August, so four months Last ago. August, all right. So you're not, you're <laughs> but not still- as much- you weren't as much in the thick of it, you know, by 2021, late at the end of last year, people are getting back to the normal life in it, but it, but it varies tremendously based on what city or state they're in. Uh, and then the countries are still changing their policies because we have these Delta and Omicron variants and there's, uh, constantly changing country policies. Has that, affected the airline industry or the travel industry in non-obvious ways other than just putting an enormous strain on and limitation on the people actually traveling?
1: You know, it's actually kind of surprising. I was reading the economic report recently for inflation stats and I found that airline prices actually haven't changed that much over the past year. Hmm. And what we do is we actually track the metrics of TSA throughput per day. And at the time of our launch uh, four or five months ago, we actually saw pre-pandemic levels of travel, but most importantly, within the US. And you're absolutely correct. Obviously, flights to Europe and elsewhere were severely impacted, but every flight that I've taken has been packed to the brim, and the TSA throughput has been really, really high. So that's actually shaped a little bit of our strategy and kind of given us some breathing room where... We have this strong U.S. focus at the moment, where when you use Allude, you'll notice that most of the cities are within the U.S. And while it is fully our intention to bring in international destinations, because there are these caveats around COVID and restrictions and vaccination, there's a lot of uncertainty there. So our goal right now is to kind of offer people the more easier and kind of more predictable trips to the extent of our ability.
0: Mm. I dig that. So really, that's kind of how it is. Like international travel is low, at least international in and out of.
1: International and business travel as well. Like pleasure, surprisingly, is quite high. Like I mean, Christmas and Thanksgiving
0: were absolutely slammed, as you probably saw in the news. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Do you think that's a uh, 90%? Are we basically at completely, you know, p- uh, parity levels where we were prior to? If you uh, check you the know. stats, we're actually at parity and we've surpassed it, which is quite surprising, but yeah. we're actually there. Which is yeah, wild. it's so fascinating. Uh, and have you guys raised money or is it? Yeah. We have. So we closed our seed round, uh, last
1: year around October. So we raised about I think $3 million and mm-hmm. right now we have a lot of fun runway. So it's certainly nice to have budget to expand out both to vendors and partner with various providers. So it really gives us the much needed fuel to get the next step of evolution for elude to make it really an ironclad product that people will love and use.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and the travel sector is so fascinating. Um, I mean you're you're a year into it not even a year into it well a little over a year depending on when you mm. started launch well as far as launch yeah um and I find that the travel sector for startups is one of the areas that uh is it's what's the way to describe it like investors will kind of label it as a uh a graveyard for other startups, not to imply that it's impossible to mm-hmm. innovate, but that it is really challenging. And a lot of like really notable companies, I think of even um uh Hipmunk, Tripmunk, HipMunk, the travel search engine that was competing with Kayak, they were an awesome product. And, you know, they were like, yeah, we're never gonna put ads on. They slowly added ads and then they ended up selling. And I don't think it was a big venture win. But it uh, it felt like, oh, man, why is it so difficult? Is it just the, is there regulations behind the scenes that make it hard? Is, the, is it just p- the incumbents in the space are, I don't know, so difficult to work with? Or what do you think the main ingredients for the challenges are?
1: That's a great question. I mean, you're absolutely correct. The regulatory aspect is insane. And in this case, huge shout out to my CEO, Alex, because The lift on the bureaucratic paperwork is incredible. So in order to even interface with the GDS, you have to have an ARC number, which is the airline reporting kind of commission. So you have to have registration with them that we can actually ticket airlines. And when we do a sale, we batch these reports and send them over. Same thing that if we sell to consumers, we actually have to be a department of transportation certified travel agency. So legally, we're actually on the same footing as Kayak and Expedia. So both from a legal perspective, there's a lot of compliance and difficulty. And, you know, similar to banking and healthcare, there's a lot of technological crust. Because, you know, there are systems where there's literally people calling each other over the phone to put in some orders on the back end. So there might be an API in the front, but their response time is four hours because someone has to push some papers. So that's really a big challenge that we faced is, you know, we're incredibly thankful for the partners that we work with at the same time. Their solutions are probably from the 80s and 90s as far as the offerings that they have. And we're building a company in the 2020s. So even on an API interaction level, they cannot support the throughput that we are attempting to have. Their data structures are not what we would expect. So it's actually quite challenging to take the responses that they send us and process them and munch them to something that is actually meaningfully used within our own infrastructure. And that's just a surface level example, but there's so much intriguing complexity. It's certainly a very exciting space, right? Like, you know, when you do a reservation, you have to collect users information to make sure it's TSA compliant for security purposes. And then you have to make sure there's no fraud. So you kind of get the delightful combination of like fraud risk and challenge with technological stuff. And at the end of the day, you're working with travel, which is such a personal and valuable thing. A lot of folks, they may take only a vacation once every two, three years. So it's imperative that we
0: get it right in order to respect our users. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you have to register to be a travel agent with the department of transportation. Is that right? Yes. And is that, is the philosophy behind that, that in order to place an order directly with a airline, uh, which in your case, you and, and kayak or Expedia would, would, would be in that position. You, you can't have direct orders come in. I mean, you can, right. You can have direct Uh... orders come in, right. If I go to Southwest.com. I can book directly. Yes. As a consumer,
1: you can as a company. And to be honest, I wasn't super involved in the legal lift, so I don't know too many of the details, but I know on a technical level, there's a lot of batching involved. So even when you perform a booking, you're not necessarily kind of consolidating with the airline immediately. You might have a batch every week or every month where you do the big reports and kind of there's a lot of paperwork that goes back and forth. So it's very different from a consumer transaction.
0: Hmm. So when somebody submits on kayak or through you guys, you'll batch them, meaning the the actual reservation isn't, isn't set at the time. It's, it's kind of like, uh, a there's held a delay.
1: T- so you'll notice this with, you know, Southwest or United or whoever you book with directly, you typically get a confirmation of the purchase. And then usually maybe 15, 20 minutes later, you get your preliminary ticket number. So they do guarantee that. And, you know, we do the same. Like you, if you get an email from us with a ticket number, that is a live ticket, it will work. But on the back end, as far as payments and consolidation with the airlines, that might happen a little bit later. So it's more of an administrative processing, similar to a bank, right? With their ECH yeah. delays, you know, you can do a transfer, but the actual settlement happens a few days later. So right. we're kind of in a similar situation.
0: Right. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing from a consumer's perspective. It's pretty indifferent. Oh um, yeah. I mean, their, their ticket is safe, so there's no, no problems there. Yeah. Do you feel like there's anything in the on the regulatory side or the way things technically are structured that it's um it's it's in unstable where it's it's just operating on some old uh, old uh, paradigm and it's just not serving the people anymore?
1: Uh, that's a great question. I wouldn't say I would go that far. I mean, it certainly works. It's just not the fastest or, or most intuitive. And again, because essentially the technology that we see today is effectively an evolution of the travel agents of old that would call the airline desk and they would have their printed out sheets where they would make reservations and read them back the ticket number. So that paradigm was kept when it was translated into the modern technology that the folks have. And it's interesting because we're seeing demand from consumers for this budget search, budget first search, or, you know, hypothetically a region first search or maybe beach first search or whatever it may be. So. The current systems aren't actually built for these open-ended searches, and there's really no space for personalization. So that's kind of where Allude and probably other companies come in as we try to understand what do folks actually want and help guide them. But on a booking level, if you're booking with an airline, they have no idea if you're going to visit the beach or the mountains. So there's really not much they can offer to you to really tailor or curate that
0: experience for you. Mm. And so because Allude would know where people want to go, the beach or the mountains, when you say tailor the experience, I assume you don't mean throw me a page to book a rental car because that's the, <laughs> like the, the, the I always we wonder if I want to avoid that. <laughs> well, here's the, here's the question. Why, whenever I go to kayak, I feel maybe it's just me, but I think of kayak as a place where you book flights and, yes. and I have to believe other people do as well. Cause they, they mm. uh, seem to be a leader in that space. So I go there to book a flight and a great experience. But as soon as I land on the site, they, they're like, hey, you want to rent a car? And it's always rent a car or book a hotel before the flight. Is that because the margins on flights are so small that the business models are set up to make money on other products? Is that generally the way things are structured?
1: In essence, yes. And again, I don't know the details of their contracts with rental agencies, but I do recall reading an article where essentially when they propose for you to book a car, the way the revenue is shared is they're kind of pre-booking those cars but at a discount and then they get to keep the difference so again i can't comment on the details because i haven't looked into but there's all of these interesting ways to kind of extract a little bit more more margin out same thing for hotels so the consumer rates that you or i would see on let's say hyatt.com are not the rates that these agencies are paying because they might have a preferred rate and you can only get to that space when you're a big enough player so it's you know certainly understandable and commendable that they're trying to increase their margins since they have an obligation for their shareholders but it, it does sometimes come at odds with the user experience. So that's something that we're very cognizant about. And our goal is to send you on great vacations. And if we think you need a car, maybe in the future we would try to politely offer it. But
0: I mean, I mean I'm mean, i with you. I would not want that particular experience for our users. Yeah. Is it clear what the elude strategy is on, on revenue? Do you see it as like one vertical for revenue? Or do you see it as like multiple revenue lines kind of together or
1: something we're still evolving the main story i mean given that we're a startup we're focusing on the essentials so the good news is from day one we're going to be seeing revenue where essentially with every single booking we make a commission on that so we're not going to need ads the goal here is that we want to be such an awesome platform for discovery is that folks will come to us first because they'll know we'll send them to the best places possible so our aim is to win on that traffic and on the value add that look if you give us the budget and the timing we will give you an awesome trip guaranteed that's the goal
0: yeah. Yeah. And I suppose the, I'm with you on that. I think that's awesome. Hmm. Uh, I suppose I, one, one exercise I love whenever I get into not love, but I actually hate it, but it's necessary <laughs> uh, is, is thinking like, okay, I'm, I'm working on the startup idea a, a few months or a few years into it. What is the existential risk? Like, what is the thing that I'm working on that in, if I find out a year from now that the company didn't work out, what could it potentially be? Uh, I like to ask myself that question because it forces me to think about the ugly side of like, oh, you know, if you don't get enough, whatever, right? Mm. Then it, it, it forces you to think about the the important things as opposed to the fun things. I mean, as coming from an engineering background, you could probably relate to this, where you have fun working on technology. You like building stuff and work, solving problems. Uh, but then uh, oftentimes like startups need things that are not science projects. Um, are there are there things that you think in this case would be kind of like uh, existential threats? Like I, obviously the COVID and variability, volatility is one. Um, But I suppose people just choosing it over, I mean, how how do you sort of think through that exercise?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely correct. I mean, ultimately, I think about this on a daily basis as co-founder and CTO. I have three major obligations. How do I fulfill my obligation to the users? How do I protect my investors' money? And how do I do right by my team and enable them to grow to the maximal potential they can attain? And especially for the first two points, I think the biggest factor is trust. We are a new name. Not many people have heard of us and we think we have a fantastic product and we certainly are excited for folks to use us. But a lot of folks are used to either booking direct or through Kayak or through Expedia. So one of our biggest goals right now is really showcasing a trust that, hey, when you book with us, We are certified, we have the paperwork, the tickets that you get are real, and they work like we have integrated with these partners. So legally and fundamentally, we're equivalent to Kayak and Expedia, we're just not as well known, and we don't have as many users. So I think that's going to be an interesting challenge because folks are risk averse to new things, and especially for things that are important. I think you see this in the banking industry where we've had online banking for 10 years, and I'm sure a significant portion of the population still uses traditional banks because they know they can go in person to a teller to get their issues resolved and with us being an online first travel agencies we have to really make it clear to folks that hey we have a dedicated support line where you get a real human not a random chatbot we're not going to have ugly phone trees if you have a problem we will help because we know this trip is very very important to you so i think really getting that message out and once people are on their platform they'll see that the trips we can provide are actually really interesting and really engaging and we hope that from there the word will spread and they'll bring in their friends and
0: family Hmm. Yeah, thanks for entertaining me on that one. I know it's the, it's like the least <laughs> fun question I would ever get from investors. Like yeah, how is, I mean, it's a fair one. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a fair, it's very fair, but it's also, hey, how is your dream going to fail when it does? And I'm like, oh, God, I don't want to think about it. Well,
1: this. it's great that you asked that. I think that's what makes a founder a good founder because ultimately if you only ever look at the positives if you discount the negatives completely well you can't prepare for it and because we know that this is a challenge we can take action towards it and as other things come up so i think it's your obligation at the end of the day your investors gave you money because they want to return it is your responsibility to protect that and to make sure you do right by it so of course you have to think about it
0: yeah yeah uh, I want to ask you about your background coding. So you, you, uh, <laughs> I see you get excited about that. Uh, where to even begin. So you worked at Google prior for a few years prior to starting Allude. Um But like you said earlier in the conversation, you've been thinking about and fascinated by technology for a long time. Um, what, what What is it about technology that gets you excited while you're building it? Because in my experience, uh, going to school for mechanical engineering, working in systems, which was a combination of software and system design for a few years, I would find my mind actually would kind of, I would become, I this sounds kind of strange to say, but I'd almost feel more like a computer when I spend uh, maybe all day for a few weeks straight, thinking about some system design, and and I found it difficult to like think higher level. I mean, it. I mean, being an engineer almost literally by definition is you're thinking about the details. You're getting things. Um, you're solving problems on a small scale that then in turn turn into a big scale. But h- how do you feel? I mean, how do you sort of relate to the process of building, say, software in particular?
1: That's such a beautiful question. To me, the process is deeply creative Mm -hmm. because ultimately the way I view code is that I'm not just building code to build code. I mean, beautiful code is a sight to behold, but I'm not hanging posters of it. Mm -hmm. Ultimately you build code to do something interesting. And in my case, my goal is to optimize my experience of life, which means that if I do something by hand and I can automate it, that is time that I get back to do something else that is more interesting. So a simple example is way back in the day when I learned bash, the way I learned it is I had a bunch of photos from my phone. I think it was like a razor flip phone and I wanted to sort them by dates to tag them with events. And while geo uh, location APIs weren't available yet, I could, <clears throat> excuse me, use bash to see the file modified time and auto create folders. And I remember a process that used to take hundreds of hours to do by hand to sort photos was now instant. And this really got me thinking of what else can I automate in my life? that would actually help me get back some time? And more importantly, what can I build and automate that I can actually gift back to the world so that other people can automate and get back their time? And this has been a driving factor of almost everything that I do. So when I was working on at Google, I worked on a variety of different teams, and one of my favorite teams was working on the Google Assistant because the device that Google offers, it is trying to give you back your time where you can set your alarms or get information quickly so that you can free up resources for something else. And it's just... It's it's exciting, it's fascinating, but to your point, it's really interesting because when you code for a while, you really do start to think like a computer and you view it as your own world. And it's funny because occasionally I actually view my body as inputs and outputs, (laughs) where if I'm coding, there have been multiple times where I just forget to eat for a weekend because I wake up, I code for 18 hours, I pass out, I wake up and I code for 18 hours. So, at some point, the question becomes like, okay, what are the minimum number of calories I need to sustain that are the most efficient as far as chew time so I can maximize my coding? And And Soylent. (laughs) Soylent, yes, I'm guilty. I definitely have Soylent in my closet. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. But it's interesting because you get in that mindset and I I, I assume it's similar for you. You, I I actually need about 15, 20 minutes after a hard day of coding to kind of return to humanity in a sense where it's like, okay. I'm back in this world that is physical and I need food and I have friends and I need to go see sunlight. So Mm -hmm. it's interesting how you can get sucked into this vortex of creativity, but the sublime feeling of creation that you get when you build something big and it works, because as we both know, computer science is binary. It either works or it doesn't. And it's only your fault. You have no one else to blame. So it's a very sadistic, I think, uh, approach where (laughs) you'll torture yourself with a bug, but when you get it right, it's the best feeling ever.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but I found that the, the, the times where there's a bug and I can't figure it out and it just, it feels like there's no progress being made for hours. It just, it's a kind of torture that has always kind of pushed me away from it, from, from getting really deep into it. Uh, whereas it's unlike say music or something where I can just keep going. You know, I, I, if you're playing piano or guitar or handpan, whatever it is, yeah, you may mess up, but there's not a, an immediate like block in your face. That's just like n- no proceeding any further, uh, until you figure this out. And, you know, thank God for stack overflow and other sites like <laughs> yes. it that people are posting answers to complex questions and in, in these strange areas. But I, I don't know. I don't know if you have any reactions to that, but I always found it to be so frustrating. I don't know if you relate to it. Differently.
1: I've don't, I mean, we've all encountered it.
0: I'm not going to claim I never have problems, but the
1: way that I found really helps is juggling projects. So I like to have when I'm in coding mode, two or three things that I'm working on. And I find that the subconscious background processing is incredibly valuable. So if I get stuck on something and I know I've reached a point where it's diminishing returns, I'll either take a nap, take a walk, or I'll work on something else. And very often I find that in a day or two, the answer just comes to me and I'll try it in a different way. So I think having the ability to recognize when you've been banging against the wall enough and stepping back is really, really important. And it's it's very, very individual, both to the person and the situation, but that's a technique that has worked
0: very well for me. Yeah. I, I'm curious at Google when you're working on the different teams um how does uh how does google st- structure their engineering teams uh or culture and or culture uniquely that give them the success that they have is there a an um a kind of reinforced ideology or a structure to the 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 internal operations that make them more efficient or is it really just a a propagation of top people where they have top people. So they, they recruit and they only find top people and they just keep that kind of, it's almost like an exclusive club, almost like Harvard kind of has this, or League schools have this. I'm curious one, certainly the, the just momentum is less interesting, but I'm curious if you feel that they, they have something going on or what it is that they have going on that makes them sustainably operating at a higher level.
1: I think the biggest part is the openness of the culture. So when you join the company, you spend the first two months in various boot camps. And what's interesting about those boot camps is part of them are taught by folks whose dedicated job function is to teach new engineers. But a significant portion of the later half of the courses is actually taught by normal Googlers who take time out of their day to teach a particular topic that they know. So, to your earlier point, that's where oftentimes either the top people or their initial disciples or whoever kind of studied under them can come in and transfer that knowledge. So, from the get-go, there's this strong narrative and sense that if you know something cool, you can go and teach it and people will come and learn. And that carries over into individual teams. So. Every team that I've been on had a tech talk tradition with various cadences, usually maybe every three, four weeks or so, where folks were invited to have a presentation either about the work that they've done or something that they do completely outside of work. So I've given a number of talks about my .files management and my window managers on Linux and all of these interesting topics. And you have this interesting cross-pollination of knowledge. And this bleeds into the organization structure where, while folks between Chrome and Android might not chat too much. There's all of these extracurricular activities where there's mingling. Mm. So I was part of a volleyball club for about half a year, and we had people from all over the company who were there. And naturally, as the game goes on, you'll chat a little bit about work. And I think that's where a lot of the new ideas are born, where I was chatting to a guy from virtual and augmented reality, and we ended up with an interesting collaboration that later turned into a project that folks were exploring. So that's a culture that I have really tried to bring into Loot as well, where... You don't want completely siloed organizations. Right. But at the same time, as with a large company or a small company, if everyone is talking to everyone, complete crosstalk just saturates the network. So you start to get a noisy signal. So it almost leads into management where how do you structure the optimal communication between people to facilitate this information flow and knowledge exchange, but still at the same time, keep productive and pointed in the same goal?
0: Yeah. Okay. So the teams, the individual teams create the, the individual how would you say it? Like, like network group feeling, but then the extracurricular activities, the volleyball, the Ted talk oh, bridge across the teams. Yeah. Bridge across. And so people have their focus, like you're working on Android or you're working on home assist, but then you can also chat with other people and that, and it sounds like that, the combination of these, uh, like uh, isolated focus teams, that are talking to each other as well as the onboarding process. That sounds longer than most companies. So going in there and a couple of months is longer. You know, I think of most companies I know, they'll throw engineers in and say, ready, set, go. Whereas spending two months on somebody is a big investment. Um,
1: It really is. I think, I mean, they have internal teams that analyze these things and I think there's a payoff that they see. So it's two months of onboarding and realistically you get about four to six months before you're really expected to produce output. Mostly because for anyone who's worked at Google, they know all of their tech is completely custom. The version control system, the IDE, everything you know is different. Like Even the C++, yes, it's technically C++, but it is completely differently structured. The macros are insane. The way it's built is different. So it's actually an interesting problem because when you come into Google and, to a lesser extent, some of the other things that have been around for a while, you are jumping to an island that, yes, it's technology, but it is completely unique. So the only thing that transfers over is the fundamentals of computer science or testing or system design, but the specifics of actually getting work done are very, very unique. And they factor that in as far as the onboarding goes.
0: Oh, interesting. So that must mean, yeah, you you, you have this, I, I suppose you have a big advantage in the uniqueness of the technology, but then you have a, a higher learning curve for people coming on board. And then people who, are, who know this technology, who know the frameworks that are custom built are worth more. So you're You can't, you know, you can't just hire a senior level engineer and just throw them in there, Uh, which is kind of a double-edged sword in some level, right? It's like... It really is. I mean, it has
1: implications both for bringing people in productively and also for folks wanting to leave, so you know, that's something that I thought about deeply when I was building up the Elude stack is how do we use modern open source technology? Because yes, of course, inevitably, we will build up custom infra and tooling around it. But from the get-go, I wanted to use Gole, Kubernetes, Slack, Jira, gRPC, all of these open source technologies that at the very least have community support, community documentation, and some small chance that the people that come in have at least some experience with them. Mm. Or when they leave, they'll be able to take some of that knowledge with them.
0: Yeah. Do you know if Google, I know you worked there fairly recently. Do you know if they're uh, for five years? Uh, are they totally remote now? Or are they kind of half and half? I mean, I'm sure Google and the other Apple Facebook are very similar.
1: You know, to be honest, I haven't really kept up. So I left about two years ago. So, and when you left I occasionally read the news and see kind of what's going on, but I think most of my friends are half remote, half in the office, yeah. but I couldn't comment on the official policy.
0: And, and you elude is uh remote, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, so we decided from the start, we want to be full remote, both to honor our travel and to enable access to the global workforce. So most of my developer team is in Croatia, and they're absolutely the best guys. I mean, they're incredibly quick learners. They, the time zone overlap is enough that we can get work done together, and they're incredibly capable. So we're very, very honored to work with them. Why Why Croatia? Uh, so initially when we were starting out, I didn't have the bandwidth to build up a loot and we needed, we knew that we needed a large team. So we decided to take a risk and use the initial investor money to actually contract with an outsourced agency yeah. and using the spec that we provided, have them build up the initial infrastructure. And ultimately the proposal that came in from these guys was the closest match. So we ended up in a dynamic where I would have calls with them kind of help guide the project before I really dived in full time. And they were just willing to learn and provided really good results. So we have a very, very strong partnership with them.
0: I dig it. Uh, what is the Quantic School of Business and Technology? So you, you went to UC Berkeley. Uh, I what, did, do you, yes. what do you study at the, the Quantic School?
1: So that's a fun one. So I was always debating whether or not to get an MBA. I knew I didn't want to do a master's in computer science because I think that for the goals that I had, I wanted to get in the industry and play with it. But I realized that, I had a strong interest in entrepreneurship. I took some entrepreneurship classes at UC Berkeley, competed in some pitch competitions, and I knew that my technical foundations were quite strong. But from a business side, there's a lot of interesting details that unless you've done or you've been through an MBA, you haven't actually tried it out. So after some initial research, I decided to take Quantic less so for the diploma and more for the knowledge. So there were nine different modules ranging from accounting, negotiation, mergers and acquisitions, and all of these interesting components. And the whole program lasted about nine months. And what was interesting is I actually found it had unique effects on making me a better programmer and better team player at Google and these other companies that I worked at because I understood when the PM asked for something, what were the driving factors behind their decision? Same thing for management. When they had certain requests to us that didn't make sense from a technical level, if I was able to put on that lens of the MBA and look at it from a business decision or a competitor landscaping decision, I understood why we were going in that direction. So that knowledge has actually served me quite well at loot.
0: Yeah, I bet. I bet. And what does Quantic mean? I, I honestly have never even... Heard that word before. So
1: they're a very young online MBA. They were initially called Smartly MBA, and they recently rebranded a couple years ago and they were getting their accreditation. So... Oh, okay, they just ran a fun branding exercise. I got a survey where I just like ranked which words sounded the most m b a guess everyone
0: else did too, and it looks like quantic one., <laughs> oh, that's so fascinating, yeah, the whole concept of an m b a is uh changing right dramatically because it it used to be it still is to some extent a place where you go physically and make relationships with people that you end up from what I've heard with this I've never gotten an m b a but feeling that it's the more about the relationships than it is about the actual education. And, yes. you know, you kind of need the education to justify the relationship building activities. You can't just go and, you know, exactly. sit around and do nothing. But it's like, what what is that really? Is that really the most efficient way to do it? And, uh, and what does it look like when people are remote and distributed? Um, certainly just getting together and talking, you, you know, you build the relationships with people, having something to do together, Right, like working on a common project is especially nice because you see how people actually how how they work and their so to speak true colors tend to come out more when they're stressful situations. I don't know, do you have any thoughts on education like where where it's going, given that the world seems so insanely connected the entire world is coming online i've I heard one stat a million people a week uh get connected to the internet, which mm. it blows my mind.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely correct. And I think it really depends what you're optimizing for. So in my case, I wanted to optimize for knowledge with a minimal investment of time and money, which is why the online course worked. But I unfortunately do not have a single relationship that grew out of my quantic program. On the flip side, I have some friends who did the Wharton MBA or the Harvard MBA, and their networks are incredibly strong where they have this cohort where they're all senior VPs and co founders. So I think even in this day, despite the online connectedness, it is still tremendously valuable for the reasons that you listed to go somewhere in person to establish those connections. Mm. So it really depends on optimization. I think if you have the resources and the time and you know you're going to be more business focused, it's probably worth doing. If you just want to know how to run a business, I think if you read the right books and listen to podcasts and do maybe an online MBA, knowledge-wise, you're probably getting parity. So it really depends if you want to quote, buy the connections or not.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's what it feels like right? by the connections, which I don't know. That that does seem like a pretty- <laughs> It's hard, a tricky right? one. Yeah, right? It's like, uh, why does that feel bad? Why, why does that feel kind of- I guess because some people can't afford it and therefore they're not in the club. And if you're not in a club because you can't afford it, it's like people didn't earn that spot. I think it's probably the- um, Uh, how would you even describe that? It's like a kind of a...
1: Well, it has socioeconomic implications, right? Right. Because at the end of the day, if you're taking a full-time MBA, you're probably not working or maybe you're working part-time. So, it engenders a certain amount of financial stability or perhaps a relationship where your partner is bringing enough, enough cash to kind of support both your lifestyle and the tuition and themselves. So, to your point, it's not actually accessible to everyone. And I think that's why we feel weird about it because in this day and age of connectedness and globalization, we're really focusing on equal opportunities for folks, be it college admissions or access to this knowledge. And I think that's why we're seeing these online MBAs come out that are either free or almost completely free as they're trying to bridge that gap. But to your point, I think it's definitely something that they'll need to work on to figure out how to get those connections going. I know for Quantic, we had a couple of social mixers, but Realistically, who's going to fly across the country for a social mixer for an online program that you're taking for free? So it's definitely an intriguing challenge, and I don't know. Maybe we should get someone from Quantic on the podcast.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seriously. <laughs> well, even when it comes to team building, I think you can have a really successful remote team, even at scale. You know, hundreds or thousands of people, and the people that you work with, you, you're obviously you know just like you and I talking. You can you can share ideas just as fast as you can in person uh you can see people just as well and i i'm fast forward right 5 years and the metaverse and you throw on your like your headset and you and i are, are are visually looking at each other in the same room and i think you have to you have to visualize this as being indistinguishable from how i how i'm looking out at through my eyes now and so with that level of reality it's then it's then apparent that you can work remote you can be together remotely uh without any i mean <laughs> travel necessary uh not to say there won't be travel but in the specific instance of talking to people in work it it feels like we're we're moving to a point where the in person get together is it's kind of converging at zero where it's right. I mean, tell me if you disagree with this, but the,
1: I would slightly disagree. So I think for a working relationship, video generally works, especially, you know, video, because we can see each other's emotions. We, you and I are both well lit with great lighting so we can engage our fusiform face region in the brain and like read each other's emotions. So the connection is there. That said, I know that personally, I found tremendous value in doing walk and talks, where I'm with a person and we're walking somewhere and we're having a conversation while seeing something else. And if you take a look at it from the neural perspective, you know, we have our neural nets in the brain. And by having new stimulus in the form of either locomotion or new things that my eyeballs are looking at, that jiggles my neurons enough to have new ideas. Mm. Same thing for casual conversations. So I remember I flew to Los Angeles for a business trip to meet up with my co-founders. And the conversations I had in the car during the three-hour commute through LA downtown were actually almost more malleable than the kind of brainstorming in front of the whiteboard. Yeah. So yes, from a business knowledge transfer perspective, it's there. But I think for a genuine personal connection, like doing things together that are not targeted specifically for team building, I think still have tremendous value.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting perspective about moving locomotion and how it's uh, it's probably distracting you, right? Because you're looking at what's physically going by. So you're processing that information, but you're also maintaining a conversation thread. And that those, it's like having the two threads of attention being constantly switched back and forth. Uh, something about that allows ideas to slip in exactly
1: because you're not on a single track of an idea where you're delivering a monologue and then you're listening to the other person's monologue you're co-creating an experience with these new inputs
0: Mm, yeah that is interesting similar to you i have had i I have really good memories of a, a really i have memories of really great conversations while walking with people and i you know i it's never been articulated in the way that you put it where it's specifically the distraction of things going by while maintaining the conversation that lead to, what is it? Better ideas? Is it like stronger? It's just creativity because again, like
1: maybe I just have too much of a machine learning perspective. (laughs)
0: You're you're
1: jiggling the neural, right? Like your neurons are just firing randomly. God knows it's all connected. So it just triggers new things or even associative memory, right? Like, A curve in the road might be a similar curve in the road to a place halfway across the world, and you now remember a conversation or a thought you had there, and that association triggers or smells. Olfactory sensing is actually very, very strong for correlation for memory. You'll notice that when you smell something that reminds you of your childhood, that memory is the strongest compared to visual or acoustic. So the combination of those walks, you can essentially almost anchor it where maybe you have your creative conversations in the garden with these flowers and your other conversations elsewhere and essentially have this temporal bridge of creativity
0: and association, depending on which location you're walking through. Mm, Wow. That's super interesting. I can imagine you could set it up to where you have this, uh, like, uh, like an experience <laughs> of this, you know, you could have like, um, I always thought, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but I thought there this should actually exist and maybe it does already, but you could have an API connected smell machine where say Ooh. as a programmer, like I want to infuse like the smell of the forest and then the smell of the seagulls at the beach or whatever it is. And it's a, you know, it's programmed. So in theory, I could sit in a meditation or sit in the room and there's, there's just a chain, like a dynamic sensory. Ooh. Um yeah dude maybe this is your next next project. All, <laughs> guys,
1: all the founders listening to the podcast here's a free idea we would totally invest. <laughs> yeah
0: yeah yeah no i i dig that. There's um yeah so many ideas i think i'm i'm in this state of of being triggered by something else that brings into, into mind a uh, a new a new concept which you mentioned randomness which uh kind of triggered an idea for me ironically enough. Uh in, in, in software, you can call a function random brand R and D I think is usually what it is. And it's, uh, it's generating in a number randomly, but, but what is, what is really happening there? Do you know, um, I, 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 when you generate a, a number randomly, how is that possible? Like how can a computer just pull in a number out of nowhere? Is that, Do you know? No, I'm happy to explain. So what? it's
1: actually really interesting. So I can't speak to Microsoft or macOS, but on Linux, there's actually an entropy pool that is automatically maintained. And this is gathered from mouse movement, from the different temperatures on your disks, the sector numbers that the disk reads, and a variety of just different events that are happening. And it's actually really interesting that you mentioned that because in servers that have a large demand on random resources, you can actually have a deadlock on random. Because if your server is stuck and it needs a random number, it's not doing anything, which means that new entropy can't be generated. So there's actually an additional package you can install that provides more input sources in order to buffer up the randomness pool. Otherwise, your servers might freeze. And it's not fully random, but it's as close to random as we can
0: get. And so so, um, let's start off explaining this to me like I'm 12. So if the the server is pulling in a random number, it has these different... uh, Data points that like you said, the temperature of the disk or the location mouse of the mouse is a big one and yeah. what, is it, what is it doing? It says so this is the coordinates of the mouse and the screen, what would it do with that information?
1: Uh, I don't know the exact implementation, but I would expect it would be some well-known mathematical formula that essentially the goal is to generate a string of bits that you can consume at your convenience. Mm -hmm. So let's say you have 17 bits in your buffer. If you ask for a random number between one and eight, well, we're going to give you those first few bits and that's going to be your number. But now my buffer has only, let's say, nine bits left over and so forth. So what happens is if you ask for more and more random numbers or larger random numbers, that buffer gets eaten up and the server's just trying to refill it as fast as possible. Oh, I see. So I don't want to type it up since my mechanical keyboard is very loud, but yeah. there's actually a command you can
0: use to check your current random pool value and kind of see how much randomness do you have on your machine. That's so interesting. It's so interesting. So it's not, it's not technically random because the idea of, of something <laughs> random seems like... Like almost from a philosophical... I mean, true randomness is mathematically impossible. Right, is that right? Okay, that's what I was getting to. It is mathematically impossible. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, we can. I mean, yeah, like, okay, if we can sample the atomic electron orbits of some atom, well, it's still going to be biased to some extent. So at this point, we would essentially have to collapse the entire uniform into some awesome hash and hash the uniform. But then if everyone has the same hash, it's not random again. So yeah. <laughs> it's actually a really fun problem. I mean, yeah. the security folks always have a field day with us.
0: Yeah, I love when mathematics and engineering, particularly mathematics, because it's on the on the tip of the spear of engineering, mm-hmm. when, when it gets into uh, its limits. Um, do you do you stay up on uh, maybe artificial intelligence technology or uh, any of the more bleeding edge uh, technical limitations of where we are? Oh, it does make
1: sense. So I read the open AI papers when they come out and I try to keep a pulse on it. I think AI is kind of in this interesting field where a lot of the optimists keep saying that we're five or 10 years out from generalized AI and five or 10 years pass and we're not there yet. So there's a lot of skepticism. That said, I think we're, we're getting closer to having algorithms and machines do things that humans can previously do. Image recognition is a classic example. Speech transcription, word-to-text uh, synthesis has obviously come a long way. So true generalized intelligence, it's an interesting problem. I mean, one, there's the philosophical debate as can a brain create something with equal or greater complexity to itself? Uh, uh, definitely lots to debate there and everyone has a different opinion too is well we don't actually fully understand the brain and right now we do not possess the technology to indescr- non-destructively image it and even destructively the fidelity that we can get with electron microscopes aren't quite there where we need them to be so when you get your mri you're still looking at you know uh, voxels i believe is a technical term for them and i think it's a millimeter by millimeter cube where the best proxy that we have for neural activity is essentially blood flow saturation within the brain So we can see which regions are doing stuff, but we can't actually see the neural connections that are going on there. So then, of course, the question is, is okay, if we're actually able to scan those neurons, and assuming we have complex enough hardware, if we boot it up, would that actually cause consciousness and thought? And we don't really know. So I think there's a lot of interesting questions. I think given the advances in GPU architecture, Google's TPUs, and AI in general, maybe by the 2030s 2045 we'll see something but it's hard to say it
0: my my intuition in and, and this is kind of gathered from reading a lot and listening a lot and and contemplating is that we're we're thinking about this kind of inversely to the to the reality of it where i, I don't think the solution is going to come from the outside in by looking at the brain we're going to like spin up the hard drive and then there's going to be consciousness online. It it feels more like the other way around where it would be consciousness first. And then the brain is the, the reality of what's observed by it. And, you know, this is kind of where philosophers or modern day philosophers like to spend time is thinking about the the mind body problem or challenge Mm -hmm. or dilemma. And it, it does seem like the Western approach of going out, out to in, you know, we look at uh, cognitive science, neural, neuroscience, we're, we're studying the brain, we're studying it from what can I observe? And then the, the, the traditional like Eastern approach in the world, which really hasn't been uh, collectively observed in our scientific method very much, seems to go from the inside out. So what's it like to do this? What's it like to observe the mind from the inside? And then we report on that from a scientific perspective that still seems like the the uncharted territory in large part that i think can potentially bridge this gap with and i and i think it does circle back into the ai development because it's um it's it's very much indicative of how the mind and and the organ of the brain uh function together how they're correlated and how they like i don't like the word how they work but how how it works is 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 got to be observed from the inside out, as well as the outside in, to try to use that as a guideline when developing AI, um, because it would be, to me, I think what what, what could if you're gonna if you're gonna take um, if you're gonna design and make a machine that has the same consciousness as we do, well, then it would have to have the same conscious experience. So it would have to experience all the biases, the blind spots, the uh, the, the things that humans do. Uh, and I, I don't know, It's it, I find it difficult to separate those two, like difficult to separate the, the mind experience from the body when developing AI. And this is probably far down the road from where they are. You know, I'm sure it's like you said, let's, let's, if I put a banana on the screen, let's recognize that it's a banana. But that's kind of the direction that you're headed is, well, what's it going to be like for this, this AI? What's, what are they going to think? Hopefully though.
1: The interesting thing that comes up is, are you familiar with the Chinese translation room paradox? No, tell me about it. So this is actually great and super relevant. So the thought exercise is, let's say we have a room, and this room has a slot in a wall. You take Chinese sentences, you put them in the slot, and you get back a response. You can have a conversation with this room. Now the question is, is there a native Chinese speaker inside who's writing you answers? Or hypothetically, is it a random monkey or a random non-chinese speaking person who has thousands of books that have a procedural rule that say okay if you get this then you do this and essentially they can work through these rules by hand and write up responses that seem syntactically valid and present a conversation and at the same time the person has no inherent knowledge of chinese and this comes back to your point is Let's say, taking a simple example of AI, if we had a third guest here and it was an AI and we're having a conversation, are we actually having a conversation that they comprehend? Or are they just very good at this procedural thing and we just haven't found the books? And to take it one step further, you and I are having a conversation. I can't empirically prove that you are conscious and you can't do the same for me. The most that you know is the usual Descartes, I think, therefore I am. So what's really interesting is, even if we get there from a technical level, I'm not sure we'll actually ever be able to prove that there's inherent consciousness. Like the current algorithms that do image recognition, they have no conceptual understanding of what's a banana, but they will take a picture of a banana and they'll give you English letters or a vector that says, hey, this is a banana that you can then translate. But it's not like there's comprehension there. So yeah. that's where it gets really yeah. interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I, I resonate with you on, on both those points. One, you can't prove that any anyone is conscious other than yourself. I mean, really, that's... I, I think it's, uh, I think I feel pretty confident saying that that's the reality, at least as I perceive <laughs> it I, there. I'm always open to the, the possibility that there's some experience or some reality that other people have that I I'm just not at yet. And, but it's, it seems like that's kind of the, the definition is that it can't be, we can't just merge these together, uh, maybe that's true. You know, maybe th- I've often thought that the way we interact with all the other life in the universe, which you'd throw out the numbers of planets and stars out there. And it's like, no fucking way. There's billions of trillions of stars. <laughs> How is that possible? And it just seems so mind boggling. Yeah, it's so mind boggling. them I'm like, well, OK, there's likely got to be there just has to be other life out there. Are we going to fly on rockets, burning gas across the whole thing to physically get together and so we can you know, wave to each other? And t- it's, yeah, maybe I, you know, probably at some level, but it also seems like there's got to be way more advanced methods of communication, and that maybe it's like, maybe it's through this this discovery pattern that the that humans are kind of going through with AI that like links us up, almost like you know, you have your phone sitting here, and this is just linked up with your phone, and I can make your phone vibrate and talk. That that's literally magic to somebody a couple hundred years ago. And as soon as you present the idea of like, oh yeah, our minds through technology are linked in a way that we can communicate with other life and other galaxies. It's like, yeah, that sounds crazy today, but I'm, it feels just as crazy relatively as the iPhone does a few hundred years ago. So that's kind of a, that gets me excited. I mean, if if nothing else, there's not scientific evidence. I mean, we can't observe that we've done it yet because we obviously haven't, but it is an exciting destiny, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I mean, just speculating wildly, right? If you take the concept of quantum entanglement, I, I again, I'm not strong in quantum mechanics, but if every atom in my brain is quantumly entangled with something else elsewhere, well, does that mean that there's kind of a shadow brain somewhere else in the universe? Or does it mean that all of my entangled pairs of my neurons are scattered through the universe and the same for yours? Mm. And maybe if we find those other ends, maybe we could do something with them and essentially recreate
0: you, but halfway across the galaxy. Uh, Again, wild speculation, but just fun to think about. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is fun to think about. Because at some point, this is how it works, right? It 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 goes from an idea that you can articulate and I can say, oh, that makes sense to you create a story about it. To the story becomes what you call this a science fiction novel and maybe movie, and then that gives direction to the engineers to say, "Let's go, let's go, try to build this crazy thing." We now have all the tools in place, and then it, they they kind of then it's like, "Oh my god, we're going to build a rocket and go to the moon!" Like and then now and then that just becomes the way it is, and then the next thing happens, and it's like that is the <laughs> evolution of freaking consciousness and, on the planet, and that's uh yeah, absolutely yeah. Well, I love the the course we just <laughs> we just charted here. Hmm. Uh <laughs> yeah, definitely lots of Yeah. Well, like you backpack. know no no limits to travel, right? And when I think of Elude, I I I I really think about the the long-term vision of it, which you know, really with travel hopefully becoming much more accessible. I don't know if you have strong thoughts on what SpaceX is doing, but I've I've seen their kind of commercial of having interplanetary transportation from LA to Tokyo in 40 minutes. It's like, if, if those, if that kind of transportation becomes reality, just like the airplane does, then all of a sudden, you know, it's like, why not go to, you know, Tibet LA this weekend? Yeah, Tokyo right, right. And, right. and if it's sustainable, you know, we're using liquid oxygen or whatever it is that we can then, you know, not destroy the environment from. Um, that's pretty, that's pretty exciting. Then you just punch it in.
1: <laughs> you know that the day that we can book you a spacex ticket all
0: yeah yeah it's gonna be a fun one yeah yeah <laughs> you, you know they're gonna have the best api to work with i'm sure oh they will yeah i have no doubt uh, cool <laughs> and uh are you active on social media do you write or speak or do any tweeting
1: yeah. So I run two blogs. One is Ivans.io. So I-V-A-N-S dot I-O. Another one is kind of more of a long form blog where I showcase. So it's blog.ivansmirnov.name dot, dot name and A-M-E. And I'm trying to get better about publishing there often and Twitter, not so much, but as I get more questions, I try to keep my blogs as an FAQ on my life. So I'll try to publish various fun insights there.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much today for the time. I really enjoyed diving in with you. Congrats on all the progress. I wish you nothing but the best, Evan.
1: Thank you very much. It was so fun to be here as a guest and I really love the different aspects of
0: conversation. <laughs> so much, so it was a pure joy. Thank you. All right, buddy. Take care. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you.